This is an RNZ podcast. Anyone logging into onenews.co.nz from their home office last weekend would have received some disturbing news about their apparently deteriorating bodies. Under the headline, Research Reveals What Remote Workers Could Look Like in the Future, the site ran a series of pictures of a digitally generated model dubbed Anna, along with a story describing her as a vision of what working from home could do to people by the year 2100. As it turns out, not commuting into the office is more harmful than you might have thought. Here's what it did to Anna, according to One News. Anna is a grotesque figure. With claw hands, swollen limbs, red eyes and a hunched back due to consistent use of laptops and smartphones, poor posture and an unhealthy diet. Terrible news, and even worse that this projection was apparently based on research. Except, as it turns out, it wasn't. A cursory glance at the story's origins shows Anna was actually invented seemingly out of whole cloth by the Scottish company Furniture at Work UK. Hardly a disinterested party when it comes to the working-from-home debate. It seems, rather than robust research, the story was a barely-disguised ad for office furniture. In fact, the link to the Furniture at Work UK blog introducing Anna later redirected to a page selling ergonomic desk chairs after it started being included in news stories. Good web traffic if you can get it. One News eventually deleted its story, but it was far from alone in spreading Anna across the internet. Stuff also ran a story on Furniture at Work UK's invention with the headline, Remote Worker of the Future Could Look Like This, Say Researchers. They were following in the footsteps of a host of international outlets, including the Daily Mail and the New York Post. It's not the first time Furniture at Work UK has employed this PR trick to great success. In March, it convinced the Daily Mail to run a story on its similarly made-up vision of what offices could look like in the year 2050. It's also not the only entity using dicey research or so-called study results to garner uncritical media coverage. In May, One News reported on a study that it said cemented the theory that garlic can help treat the flu or even COVID-19. As it turns out, the non-peer-reviewed study it was citing was commissioned by the lobby group for Australia's garlic producers. Experts described it as extremely early lab bench research which is unlikely to prove useful in clinical settings. The list goes on. Back in 2018, Stuff reported on what it called the surprising link between exercise and infidelity, while nzherald.co.nz ran a story about what it said were the most unfaithful professions. Both reports relied on unscientific, self-selected surveys filled in by users of the infidelity-friendly dating website Ashley Madison. Hardly carefully weighted polling and good exposure for the website. Presenting arguments in the form of a study result can also help more credible, less infidelity-friendly organisations dodge media scrutiny. This is how News Talk ZB's Roman Travers reported the conclusions of a tax survey carried out by the consultancy firm Sapira back in April. How many times in recent decades have you heard the call for a better and fairer tax system? How many times... Have we heard government saying that the tax system needs to be looked at? Well, I've got some good news for those at the upper end of income earning who may have been wondering when the tax axe was about to fall, forcing them to hemorrhage more. It turns out 
Our tax system is pretty fair and equitable after all. Case closed, or so it sounded. In actual fact, tax researcher Max Rashbrook, Oxfam and tax justice Aotearoa, among others, all raised concerns over that research which they said failed to consider the amount of income the wealthiest New Zealanders are earning through capital gains. The tax consultancy firm that commissioned Sapera, Oliver Shaw, admitted the study was an attempt to get ahead of IRD research, which it thought might cast doubts on the fairness of our tax system. Those concerns were well founded. That IRD research was released the following week, and it concluded the wealthiest 300-odd New Zealand families were contributing an effective tax rate less than that of minimum wage workers. In the eyes of some experts, the reporting on these types of studies highlights a weakness in the media's defences. Most publications would never dream of running advertising for free or publishing a highly ideological press release verbatim, but they may do so if the same information is presented in the form of research or study results. The Science Media Centre recently highlighted the use of what it calls cloaked science, where technical language, difficult to understand graphs and charts, or seemingly scientific data are deployed to hide a political, ideological or financial agenda. Dr Sarah Jane O'Connor, a teaching fellow at Victoria University's Centre for Science and Society, joined me to talk about how reporters and editors can spot less than credible studies in order to report their results a little more sceptically. Kia ora, Sarah-Jane. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora, Hayden. Have you noticed that if questionable info is presented in the form of a study or research, it's more likely to get media coverage and uncritical media coverage at that? I think what's happening is that science and research and scientists have a lot of trust already. It's good that the public and the media trust scientists, but it means that people who might want to get their own messages out whether it's, you know, their own company's PR or maybe even misinformation might kind of jump onto that bandwagon and use that same terminology, the study, the research, you know, new new research published to borrow that ear of credibility and try and get their own messages across. Is it something you've noticed increasing recently that kind of, I don't want to call it junk science, it's sometimes called cloaked science, increasingly getting coverage in the media? Um, I was a journalist about 10 years ago and it was definitely happening, definitely seeing things come into our um, into our newsroom inbox in that kind of vein. So I'm not sure if I'd say it's increasing. Maybe there's just more people trying to, to do this. Maybe there's just sort of a, a greater quantity, but I don't know that it's a, maybe a, de- a deliberate increase. How do reporters and editors not fall for it? The stuff that journalists are doing all of the time. So trust but verify, wanting to have a look at where this information is coming from. So there's a few key things to look for. I'd always be looking to see where research has been published. Not all research does get published, or or we might want to report on it early because it's really important. So we saw that a lot during 2020 and the early phases of COVID-19. We wanted to know what was happening quickly. And um, unfortunately, academic publishing takes a very long time. But it does show that there's been a little bit of robustness around the process that a few other people, a few other experts have looked at this research and checked that it's legitimate, that they have done what they said they've done. Um, And then I would be looking to see who's actually done this research, who's paid for it, are there any conflicts of interest, if it's funded by a company that might benefit from this research or survey or whatever it might be, that should raise some, some alarm bells. There can still be good research funded by industry and companies, but it should still um, investigate it a little bit further. 
I would say if we're looking at things like surveys, we need to be clear. It's really hard to do a good survey to make sure that you're actually getting a, a fair sample of, of people who might respond. So if, for instance, a company was doing a survey just of their members or the people who are signed up for their newsletters or whatever might, that might be, that's going to be a very biased sample. It's not going to be representative of a wider wider population. And then we see a lot in, in health um, where we might see a new study come out, especially things like, you know, such and such causes cancer or whatever it might be, and buried way down in the details, we might find out actually the study was done on 10 mice and it's not at all applicable to humans or at least not yet. And if a journalist or an editor does get a study into their inbox from PR company, whatever, and they suspect that it's not too robust, what should they do? Yeah, so journalists in New Zealand are really lucky. We have a group called the Science Media Centre, which I used to work for, um, which is a publicly funded group that is absolutely there to help with this. Um, and they can also put journalists in touch with experts who can look at that study and give an independent view on whether this is something worth doing. Those headlines that we see can be really influential. Once they're published, and yes, they might get corrected later on or get retracted later on, but some people will have only seen that first story and they might believe that scientific information. So I do think it's really important to stop and take that time and take that responsibility to make sure that what's being reported is as accurate as, as a journalist can, can figure out in those time pressures. Thanks very much, Sarah-Jane. Thank you, Hayden.